Well, good morning to one and all. We are continuing our sermon series today, The Unexpected Messiah. And so the passage that we will look at today uh, begins what is known as the Upper Room Discourse in the book of John, which is a, a, a private and, and intimate time between Jesus and his disciples shortly before Jesus would go to be crucified. And it's this, this look that the Apostle John gives us, uh, almost as if we're uh, watching a movie unfold or a, or a, or a play, uh, John 13 through 17. So this marks the start of that. And uh, it's the other New Testament gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who record this occasion as being the Passover meal. Now, there's some ambiguity um, as to which meal John is referring to here in John 13, whether it's the actual Passover meal, whether it's some other meal prior to the Passover meal. But uh, I think it's appropriate for us to, to view this setting as the actual Passover meal. And you know, John, compared to the other gospel writers, is sometimes unique in, in the events that he describes, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, don't include in their accounts. So the extraordinary event that we will look at this morning is one such event that John uh, records uniquely. So let us turn to God's word, John 13, verses 1 through 20. This is God's word. It is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. So follow along in your Bibles or, or on the screen. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, the gift of your word, for what it reveals, uh, your character, your truth, salvation. So we pray today that uh, as we look at this passage, that you would reveal to us by your spirit these things. Help us to see your son, Jesus Christ, uh, more deeply. Father, in your name we pray. Amen. So at the beginning of this remarkable passage, right in verse 1, we see the, the love and the care that Jesus had for his disciples. And it's that much more remarkable because of how short of a time it was until Jesus went to the cross from this point. Uh, it's, verse 1 says he loved them to the end, uh, to the end of his ministry uh, on earth, his time with them, but, but also to the end in the sense of, of completeness, right? And to the, to the complete and, and perfect end, Jesus loved his disciples. And because he knew he would be at the cross in just a matter of time, it, it makes his love and care for his disciples just that much more amazing. So three main things we will look at this morning uh, with this passage. Jesus' divine status, Jesus' humility, and cleansing. So first, Jesus' divine status. Jesus is no less than the Son of God. Uh, verse 3, if you look there, it says he had come from God and was going back to God. In the prologue of this same book of John, the Apostle John proclaims Jesus as the very word of God who was with God from the beginning and was God and through whom all things were created. Also in verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hands. And then if we go to John 17, that high priestly prayer, just what a beautiful passage that is and a glimpse that we get there of the unique relationship that Jesus had with God, his Father, that only Jesus is truly Son with a capital S. Matthew, in his book, in Matthew eleven twenty seven. Uh, records these words, these words uh, that Jesus spoke. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Jesus is the Son of God, and, and as the Son of God, uh, we see as this unfolds that Jesus is uh, orchestrating these events despite the schemes of the devil. Uh, if you see in verse 2, we're told that the devil was directing the very heart of Judas, one of Jesus' very own disciples, uh, directing his heart to betray Christ. And if we go back all the way to the beginning, as it were, in Genesis, we see that the devil from the beginning has attempted to destroy the work of Christ in all his power and fury. But Jesus and the devil are not equal rivals, uh, much as we might see in a, a baseball game or a football game or a tennis match or a basketball game, NCAA tournament going on right now. Um, some of you I know are watching that. Um, so it's not, it's not one of these things where it's a, it's a team or two individuals or two teams of equal strengths and talents and abilities pitted against each other. Jesus has the upper hand because he is the Son of God. And John is reminding us here that, that Jesus acts and he moves, and he does so because of his position as God's Son. 
So the question for us is, do we ascribe to Jesus this high status that Scripture gives to him? You know, people say many things about Jesus, and there's always a tendency, I think, to, to see Jesus as only a great teacher or only a moral example or only a savior. And don't get me wrong, those things are certainly true of Jesus, uh, but we don't truly honor Jesus and worship him as he is if we don't also hold Jesus to be God's son, to be Lord of all. And after all, in verse 13, if you see there, Jesus says to his disciples, you call me teacher and Lord and you are right, for so I am. So Jesus' divine status the second thing is Jesus' humility, and, and Jesus' humility flows directly out of his divine status. In verse 3, John tells us that Jesus proceeds to wash his disciples' feet, and, and does so because he was and is the Son of God. So certainly it helps for us to, to be aware when we read a, a narrative like this, to remember the culture and and. What was the case? People walked around a lot from place to place. It was before cars. They walked around with open sandals. It was dry. It was dusty. So what was going to happen? Your feet were constantly going to be dirty. So you come into someone's house, and it was just a, a kind gesture for the host to you know, wash the, the feet of, of the guests. And certainly the host nor the guest, I think, wanted a bunch of you know, dirty feet staring them in the face. So this was just the reality of the day. And so Jesus undertakes this rather gross, menial task of, of washing his disciples' feet, which was reserved for lowly servants. Uh, in fact, according to some tradition, it wasn't even done by Jewish servants. It was, it was done by Gentile servants. That how, that's how lowly of a, of a task uh, that washing others' feet was. But imagine the scene. Jesus sharing a meal with his disciples, the meal still in progress, and then Jesus rises from the meal, and they're watching their master do this, and uh, he, he rises, and he removes his outer garments, he takes the towel, he fills the water basin, and then begins to wash their feet. Uh, stunned silence seems to be what was, was going on here. Probably some embarrassment, too. You know, you can imagine what the disciples maybe were thinking well, this really should be us that's doing this, and here we're just watching Jesus you know, go about this lowly, menial task. And then what does Jesus do? He even washes the feet of, of Judas. Uh, what a picture of love and, and humility that is, that he would even wash the feet of his friend turned enemy who would betray him. I like how St. Clair Ferguson uh, compares this passage in John 13 with Philippians 2, 6 through 9, which is really uh, a, a beautiful hymn magnifying the humility of Christ. And uh, let me read Philippians 2, 6 through 9. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not, account, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So just a few ways that, that Ferguson uh, compares these two passages and how they, they mirror each other. Uh, here in John, Jesus lays aside his outer garments 
And in Philippians, he empties himself by becoming, by coming to earth, by taking on flesh. Jesus takes the towel here in John and takes the form of a servant in Philippians 2. Jesus begins to wash the, the feet of his disciples in John. And in Philippians verse eight, two, uh, chapter 2, verse 8, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus in no way saw it beneath his dignity, uh, beneath his high position as God's son to perform this act of humility. Uh, I was reminded of a time when I was in college and I worked at a printing company uh, part-time just to earn a few bucks to pay for some things. And I remember uh, this one time, there was this huge project that had to go out and I think it was a short amount of time that we had to, to, to get this project out the door, and I think it was a very important client. And I remember, so this company was, was purchased by a, a larger corporation, and uh, one of the, the higher-ups from this corporation actually flew in from wherever his office was, I think just to see the project along and make sure it was completed and got out the door. And I remember seeing him there, I was like, whoa, this is a pretty big deal. And, you know, he, he gathers us around, and, and my work there was very boring, by the way. It was uh, very tedious, you know, a lot of collating and stuffing, and I got really good with a tape gun, though, that's for sure. Um, but one of the things we had to do, it was a printing company, so we made a lot of boxes, and so we had to make a ton of boxes for this one project. And so this, uh, this higher-up is giving us, you know, the, the details of it, and, and then he just, he starts himself making the boxes and said, all right, we're making boxes, and... And then, little by little, we start to follow his lead. But I uh, just remember that sticking with me, that here is this man who wasn't, you know, sitting off to the side in a chair enjoying a beverage, you know, watching us peons, you know, do the, this, this menial work, which had to get done, but, um, but he was right there uh, leading the charge, setting the example for us to follow, that he didn't see his own position as, uh, you know, a leader in this company very high up, uh, as beneath him to... To, to, to do this work um, with us and really set the example. So we come to the third main thing this morning. And again, we should connect this with Jesus' humility, and that is cleansing. Jesus washing his disciples' feet was really more than a physical action, uh, more than a gesture of cultural hospitality, but it was symbolic. It was a pointer to a cleansing of a deeper nature. Cleansing from sin, both from the enslaving power that sin has over us and from the guilt of sin because we stand before a holy God. R.C. Sproul, who was a theologian and scholar and pastor of our modern times, who went on to be with the Lord a little over four years ago, uh, he was a prolific writer and he wrote a myriad of books and commentaries and, and articles about scripture and theology and philosophy and, and whatever else uh, interested him. And he said that if he could sum up the entire message of Scripture in just a few short words, as difficult as that might be to do, he would do it like this, slight paraphrase, God is holy, we are not, we need a Savior. We need something, we need someone outside of ourselves to save us. Uh, listen to the words of Titus 3.5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, 
by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Some commentators also see this act of foot washing that Jesus performs and connects it with the sacrament of of baptism and how baptism signifies the cleansing from the defilement of sin that comes only from Jesus' sacrificial and substitutionary death on the cross, taking our sin upon his shoulders, bearing God's wrath in our place. Furthermore, Jesus' cleansing of us is necessary to have a relationship with him. Let's return to the scene and this drama of the foot washing as it unfolds. And it's possible that Jesus first comes to Peter. Uh, John only mentions Peter by name as far as the disciples and, and as far as words being spoken. So maybe Peter was first, maybe Peter was simply expressing what was on the minds of all the disciples. But Jesus comes to Peter and in characteristic Peter-like fashion, right? Peter has his own ideas. Uh, in verse 6, if you look there, Peter says, Lord, do you wash my feet? Uh, now, I think we should give Peter a little bit of credit here and that he was, he was showing his master honor and he was recognizing that, hey, I'm the disciple. You know, I should be the one washing the feet of my master. But Jesus directs Peter's thinking to what would happen in just a short period of time, that he would go to the cross and die and be resurrected from the dead. And at that point, Peter and the other disciples would understand on a deeper level the significance of what was taking place then and there. But Peter persists and perhaps becomes even more emphatic in verse 8. You shall never wash my feet. To which Jesus responds to Peter again, Lovingly, I think, but firmly, Jesus says, Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. So what is Jesus saying here? Well, that for Peter and for the disciples and for us, we cannot participate in fellowship with God. We cannot enjoy the benefits of union with Christ if Christ does not first cleanse us. And so we think about this amazing act Um, of Jesus going to the cross, of providing and accomplishing for us that cleansing, and then our response to that. And we remember that Jesus is the example. Verse 15, if you look there, it it reminds us that Jesus is that example for us of what it means to look, to, to love and to serve others, to wash others' feet. Commentators Matt Carter and Josh Redberg right of of Jesus here, quote, his ultimate act of humble service upholds all acts of Christian service and discipleship that follow. If he had not taken on the form of a servant and humbled himself to death, even death on a cross, then we would have no ability to follow him. Friends, we don't have it within ourselves, the ability or the strength or the willpower to follow Jesus as he calls us to do apart from Jesus, both the power of his redemption and his example. Well, then Jesus also adds something in verse 17. Uh, He says, blessed are you if you do them. Now, we see this word do, and and we must not think that uh, we earn God's blessing or favor by, by doing these humble works of service. It is all of God's grace. 
But having Jesus as our teacher and Lord means that we do walk in his footsteps, that we do follow him and follow his example. This tells us that just intellectual knowledge is not sufficient to be disciples of Christ, that our lives must be marked by humility that resembles Jesus washing his disciples' feet. Jesus was probably most likely not instituting an actual sacrament here, uh, you know, giving us some mandatory practice that we must literally wash each other's feet. Uh, now, throughout history, people have done this, and I think maybe even today, somewhere in the world, you know, this is occurring. I, I don't think this is what Jesus is, is telling us here, but we are to model that kind of humility uh, of the foot washing to each other in the Christian faith, and then also for those outside the family of God. We must ask ourselves, how can we be servants to others? And I think if we survey our lives and and all the things that encompass our lives uh, day to day, probably in almost every situation, or most of them, we will have someone, quote-unquote, lower than us in certain ways, whether it's, you know, status or whether it's, it's something that we perceive, be it at work or at school or at church or in our family or friends group, in our neighborhood or our sports teams or any kind of social club or gathering. And we can all probably think immediately, if we had to, of maybe one person who, you know, we're not particularly fond of, or for some reason, a person that just annoys us, or, uh, you know, maybe it's a, a noisy neighbor or someone we just don't think is worthy of our time and attention. But if we think about it, we no doubt ourselves maybe are on someone's list. Uh, we must not be too prideful and think that, you know, we're so great and, and, and so lovable all the time. The fact is, we were most unlovable, yet God in Christ chose to love us even when we were his enemies. Take a look at verse 16 and what Jesus speaks there. And, and there's a dual repetition there that we should take notice of. The words truly, truly, or verily, verily, as other versions have, or in the Greek, amen, amen. And so anytime Jesus uses this dual repetition, it it tells us we should pay extra special close attention to what he is saying. And he says there, truly, truly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. So we're to look at ourselves and say we are his servants We're not greater than Jesus, our master. So if Jesus, the master, humbles himself and performs these acts of love and service, so should we. Maybe you've heard of uh, Henry Nguyen. He was a Dutch priest and professor and a psychologist and a writer, quite the resume, who passed away in 1996. He led rather an incredible life, having taught at Notre Dame and Yale and Harvard, quite a list there of schools, very impressive. But he left the academic world in the mid-80s and moved to Canada into a community called La Arche Daybreak. La Arche means the Arc. And it was a community which, which served uh, individuals with intellectual disabilities. And so Nguyen would be a pastor and a friend to many in this community. And he would write a book called Adam, God's Beloved, uh, about a young man named Adam in this community, and it's someone that Nguyen had, had lived with for a time and had ministered to and, and done life with. And uh, here's just an excerpt 
from that book, Adam, God's Beloved. Newen writes, Just as I started to wonder if I wasn't trying to reach far beyond my limits, Adam Arnett died. Adam was my friend, my teacher, and my guide. An unusual friend because he couldn't express affection and love in the way most people do. An unusual teacher because he couldn't think reflectively or articulate ideas or concepts. An unusual guide because he couldn't give me any concrete direction or advice. Adam was one of my housemates when I first came to La Arche Daybreak. He was the first person I was asked to care for when I joined the La Arche Daybreak community in Toronto where he lived. From the moment I saw Adam's body lying in his casket, I was struck by the mystery of this man's life and death. In a flash, I knew in my heart that this very disabled human being was loved by God and from all eternity and sent into the world with a unique mission of healing, which was now fulfilled. I recognized many parallels between the story of Jesus and the story of Adam, and I knew something else. I knew in a very profound place that Adam, in some mysterious way, had become an image of the living Christ for me, just as Jesus, when he lived on the earth, was friend, teacher, and guide for his disciples. In and through Adam, I came to a truly new understanding of those relationships of Jesus, not just as they were lived long ago, but as Jesus desires to live them now, with me and with us, through the weakest and most vulnerable people. Indeed, not only did I come to know more about God by caring for Adam, but also Adam helped me by his life to discover and rediscover the spirit of Jesus alive in my own poorness of spirit. Now, we may not be called exactly to, to live or, or serve in the kinds of ways that Nguyen was, but I think this account from Nguyen's life and this book embodies the life that God calls us to as Jesus' disciples, uh, that we are to have our eyes open to the people that he places in our paths, not looking down on anyone as less important or less significant or unworthy of God's love. And we see in this uh, the beautiful economy of God and and the blessings that are woven into the fabric of it. Brothers and sisters, let us continually look to Jesus, our Lord and teacher, who has given himself for us. Let's pray.